Listen up, major banks, have we got a bone to pick with you. Thanks to the scandalous ways your bankers manipulated, and by that we mean straight out lied, forged, and corrupted the London interbank offered rate, the interest rate average that's tied up in about $340 trillion of worldwide financial contracts, LIBOR, as it's better known, is on the way out. It's replacement, a whirlwind of uncertainty. Hello, everyone, it's Matthew DeMello, and we're back with another episode of The Fiona Show, Cross-Border Solutions Weekly Transfer Pricing Podcast, and what an episode we have for you today. Yes, I do say that every week, but then every week we outdo ourselves. Today we'll be talking about the end of LIBOR, the benchmark's last call is the end of 2021, and more specifically, what it means for transfer pricing. If you have intercompany loans, cash pools, or any other financial transactions, guess what? You will be affected. How? Well, that's why you have to listen to this episode. Like always, we have special guests with us today. Cross-Border Solutions Senior Economist Liga Hoy is here with us, and she's brought four Cross-Border Solutions transfer pricing experts with her. Beatrice Boylan, Charles Livingstone, Claire Song, and Lucy Liu have been busy pounding the pavement on Wall Street, getting to the bottom of what life after LIBOR looks like, at least so far. But before we jump into the financial transaction trenches, let's take a look at transfer pricing in the news. Hey, remember when Ireland was every corporation's favorite tax jurisdiction to set up headquarters in Western Europe? Good times, am I right, multinational tax executives? Sigh. Well, given the latest report on corporate tax revenues from the country's Department of Finance, those days are gone for good. Ireland made 10.4 billion euros in corporate tax revenues last year. That's a 20% increase since 2014. And perhaps more importantly, an all-time high of a 19% exchequer tax take from corporations last year year. Thank multinationals in the pharma, tech, and finance sectors for that. The extra tax revenue might seem like the perfect excuse to raise a pint to flush times, but don't. While the increase has helped ease some of Ireland's budgetary woes, Minister of Finance Pashal Donahoe cautioned about counting these chickens just yet. Relying on windfall corporate tax revenues with this much global economic uncertainty? No thank you. For now, the report is a reminder of increased corporate profitability. Congratulations. And if, if that continues, so will the increased tax receipts. A concern for multinationals doing business in Ireland, no doubt, but you can't exactly blame tax authorities either. I mean, would you say no to 10.4 billion euros? And turning to our ongoing coverage of global digital service tax drama, the big headline this past week is that, how does one say this politely, no one knows what to make of the OECD's Pillar 1 reforms. Let's take it from the top. You may remember last week we mentioned routine and residual profits in our rundown discussing India's latest revolt against the current multilateral plan. Routine profit refers to the heaping fortunes in taxable revenues that will be reaped by the home countries of tech companies if the OECD's current multilateral plan is implemented. As compared to the residual profit peanuts that will be collected by the countries whose markets give those tech companies such legendary margins. Seems clear enough, right? Well, not according to Will Morris, Deputy Global Tax Policy Leader at PwC and Tax Committee Chair for Business at the OECD, who said use of those terms risk, quote, confusing the conversation because people revert to what those terms have meant rather than what they will mean in the future. Well, language is fluid, Will. Don't like it? Take it up with Noam Chomsky. And for the millennials out there, he's the father of modern linguistics. And as far as definitions go, here's another one to worry about. Consumer-facing business. What the ble- 
leap is that? Only business to consumer businesses? Depending on how the OECD defines it, that could pose the threat of creating drastic inequities between B2Bs, B2Cs, and especially businesses that serve and face both businesses and consumers. Amidst cries for clarity, even Netflix, yes, Netflix, may be one of the most recognizable B2Cs on the planet, doesn't think the multilateral solution should lean one way or the other. Through press statements, global tax policy director for the streaming internet TV juggernaut Gianmarco Catani encouraged the OECD to continue avoiding carve-outs, but really hone in on a transactional tax approach to digital products and services. In speaking of the biggest names in the digital economy, say, have you been watching this whole fiasco of countries unilaterally deciding they can just swoop in and get their cut of the digital services tax pie without global consensus and thought to yourself, I wonder what Jeff Bezos thinks of all of this? Well, now we have some idea, or at least we have an idea of what Amazon's VP of Global Tax thinks, thanks to a November 11th statement signed by said VP, Kurt Lamp. We all know what you're wondering. How does this make it so Amazon pays even less in taxes than they do now? Well, stop being so cynical. Kurt Lamp just wants to see the pie be cut in more equal pieces between home countries for multinationals and where they're getting their markets from. But on a scale of the original home-leaning OECD plan to the market side plan currently proposed by India, Amazon finds a place one can charitably call diplomatic to the point where it seems a little pre-designed to stay, if not actually get, on everyone's good side. Still, it amounts to a little bit more than a water's wet manifesto, in that Amazon is at least distancing itself from the OECD and the primary benefactors of the home-leaning approach, which is to say the United States. This all while giving side-eye to these unilateral taxes going after Amazon for being so high and mighty. Is that enough for the OECD to reconsider its approach? We'll find out after OECD members and officials report back from meeting in Paris over the Thanksgiving weekend. Wonder if they serve canned cranberry sauce there too. Note to multinational companies everywhere, if you think the coronavirus has affected your bottom line, take a look at how it's devastated the economies of governments around the world. And where do you think tax authorities will look to make up for all that lost revenue? That's right, your transfer pricing. You can't afford to be non-compliant, but then you probably can't afford to pay for an overpriced consultant who bills by the hour either. Oops, sorry, big four. We've got the answer. Cross-border solutions, AI-powered transfer pricing software keeps you in compliance by preparing accurate, hyper-localized reports that protect you from transfer pricing audits, penalties, and adjustments. And our technology is available for one flat fee, a fraction of what you'd pay a big-name consultant. Again, apologies, Big Four. Stay in compliance and on budget with Cross-Border Solutions AI-driven transfer pricing software. It's no wonder we're the global leader in AI-driven tax solutions. There we go again. I'm so sorry, Big. You know what? Wait, who am I kidding? Sign up for a free demo of Cross-Border Solutions Transfer Pricing Technology today at xbs.ai slash tp. That's xbs.ai slash tp. A Stanford graduate, Liga Hoy has done it all, at least when it comes to transfer pricing, that is. As an industry economist at the start of her career, she prepared analyses to support IRS audits, advanced pricing agreements, 
and competent authority negotiations. Why start low when you can just jump right in, right? Later, as a senior economist, she advised on intangible valuation and cost-sharing Section 482 policy provisions to support the high-tech industry in the U.S. Treasury's Office of Taxed Policy. In other words, the hard stuff. She was a principal economist at DLA Piper and directed transfer pricing in-house at Agilent Technologies. Feel like you can't get any more impressed? Ha! We're just getting started. Liga worked as an honorary consul for the Republic of Latvia, representing the Latvian Ministry of Foreign Affairs and Latvian Embassy in the U.S. During this time, and in a volunteer position, she coordinated business and trade development initiatives for the Baltic Republic of Latvia. Today, at our Cross-Border Solutions, she leads a team of 10 prestigious transfer pricing managers and analysts and specializes in financial transfer pricing transactions, strategizing with MEs for the most innovative out of the box tax solutions. That's right, who says tax can't be creative? Just a quick note before we start, you'll hear me give some quick vocal overdubs, introducing our esteemed researchers on the subject as they speak. We also had to record a supplemental phone interview with Liga to cover updates in this story that occurred after we recorded our principal interview. So without further ado, let's hear from our team. Thank you so much for joining us, Liga. Just uh, before we begin, we're going to start with some get-to-know-you questions. How did you get into transfer pricing? Ah, what a great question. I got into transfer pricing right after graduate school. I had no idea I was going to get into transfer pricing. Like most transfer pricing economists, we stumbled into it. Uh, but I was very interested in international trade, international finance, and intra-firm trade, which is what transfer pricing is. And I was offered a position, and I took it because I thought it related to economics, and it very much does. And what do you love about it? Oh, I love about the fact that transfer pricing is both creative and analytical, both at the same time. So creating solutions that are unique for clients and also being very diligent and strategic and analytical at the same time. And probably our most popular question, what mistakes do you see multinationals make again and again in transfer pricing? I think the biggest mistake that transfer pricing, um, that occurs with transfer pricing with large multinationals is that the form of their agreements doesn't match the substance of what they're actually doing. So they'll paper up an agreement, they'll have a policy, but then no one is actually working to see if they administer the policy and that's what's actually booked. And I think that's the biggest disconnect and those are the, the clients that we work very closely with. Um, because that's where BEPS is really going to hit, um, that the substance of the transaction is going to carry the day rather than the form. And we have one more treat for this episode. While Liga and her team will be answering questions for the following segment, our executive producer, Mary Lynn Mitchum-Strom, will be asking them. But even before we hand things off to Mary Lynn, there is one question that would be worth asking Fiona. Fiona, what does LIBOR stand for? LIBOR refers to the London Interbank Offered Rate. It's an interest rate average calculated from estimates submitted by the leading banks in London. Thank you, Fiona. And handing things off to you, Mary Lynn. Okay. So what does that mean? And for that first answer, we turn to Claire Song. So basically, a LIBOR is a reference rate using the financial market. So for um, uh, most of the comparable loan, uh, co like the corporate loans, they reference to LIBOR. And then they apply, sometimes they apply a markup over the LIBOR to evaluate the contract of their, um, th their financial contract. And so how many loans today 
or fin financial contracts really are affected by LIBOR worldwide? So it's a, it's a benchmark embedded in around 340 trillion financial contracts worldwide currently. Okay, that's a lot of loans. What is the problem with LIBOR today? In introducing Mr. Charles Livingstone. It was discredited um, after the 08 financial crisis when authorities in the U.S. and Great Britain manipulated it uh, to make a profit. And this uh, rigging scandal ended with uh, billions of dollars levied on major banks and traders um, were um, also put in jail for these uh, actions. So the, the UK and the, the US banks, uh, they basically rigged LIBOR to be too low, and so that created a financial bubble, and there was a lot of additional risk in the market that the, the LIBOR was not measuring, and that's what caused um, the initial uh, scandal and the rigging that was, uh, that was brought up um, and that came out during the uh, financial crisis of uh, 2000, around 2012-13, but actually happened before that in 2008-09. So that was a lot due to LIBOR. And so the mortgage holders and the municipal authorities at state levels were the ones hurt by that scandal. And so now there's a move around the world to implement market-based reference rates and move away from LIBOR, which is set by a panel of banks uh, based in London, basically. So. We are still feeling the effects of the financial crisis. <laughs> Keeps on giving. No. Um, what are some alternatives to LIBOR? The New York Federal Reserve Bank put together this alternative reference rate committee to help with that transition away from LIBOR. And the reference rate that they've suggested is called the Secured Overnight Funding Rate, for short, SOFR. And here we'll introduce Ms. Beatrice Boylan. Yes, so SOFR is the uh, primary benchmark being proposed by the Alternative Reference Rate Committee by the Federal Reserve Bank of New York. And the SOFR rate was first published last year, April 3rd of 2018. But since SOFR is based off of the U.S. Treasury market, there's actually data so that it can be tracked further back However, it just wasn't published for public knowledge. So you can track SOFR back at least until early 2000s wow. and see the data from there. So SOFR is the U.S.'s benchmark rate. And there are some others around the world that have been established, too. Is, is that right? Yeah, that's true. So each country has their own, we call it ARRC, the Alternative Reference Rate Committee. But they have different names in each jurisdiction. So like for Canada, they apply like multi, uh, multiple rate approach. So they have both CDOR and Cora. And in Australia, um, they have BBSY. And they also have the, um, ca the Reserve Bank of Australia cash rate. And also in like European Union, they uh, publish, the, they call it Aster. For example, in UK, they also publish their own new reference rate. So we have all these new reference rates to replace LIBOR. And before we get into the heart of the transfer pricing part of this, I had read in a 2018 global benchmark report that surveyed 150 organizations. The report revealed that although awareness of benchmark is at a high level, the level of preparedness is at an early stage. And I'm wondering, are you seeing a lot of MEs being proactive around the switch from LIBOR? So actually, we've seen uh, not a lot of proactiveness among MEs that we work with on a regular basis. Um, really, we work with uh, close to 500 clients, and 
only I think three to five of them we've seen actually adopting the new reference rates. But that has caused us questions and caused us to do a lot of background research uh, because we've actually found because of the client's uh, transition uh, that the Australian Central Bank and also the Canadian Central Bank have already moved away from LIBOR to the uh, market-based reference rates. Uh, and so they're ahead of the game in terms of the U.S. and the U.K. Uh, so it's a very few clients in our okay. base that are actually moving in that direction. Okay. Well, that's a great summary of what's happening with LIBOR. And now we're going to talk about how it affects transfer pricing. So let's just start with the kinds of transactions that we'll see affected by the transition away from LIBOR yeah. in terms of transfer pricing. In terms of the specific transactions that uh, are going to be affected through transfer pricing, you know, uh, a lot of uh, intercompany loans, guarantees, and cash pool agreements are going to see themselves be affected by this transition away from LIBOR. I think this is going to be especially pronounced in the in the case of cash pools because cash pools are normally not only bilateral phenomenon but they're multilateral and that you have a cash pool leader usually um, in Luxembourg or Ireland sometimes now in the U.S. and you have a lot of member countries sometimes four, five, six, sometimes ten member countries around the world outside of those uh, leader countries and each of those member countries is going to be adopting their own new reference rate. So I think the cash pooling arrangements will become more complicated. Yeah. They'll all have to get on the same page somehow, right? Yeah, they're, they're going to have to understand how their reference rate trades in relation to the reference rate of the counterparty. So if it's a European member country that's the leader and they're using Esther, for example, and the Australian member of the cash pool is using the uh, BBSW or the Re Reserve ba Bank rate or UK member is using Sonia, your counterparties are going to have to understand um, the transfer pricing advisor and the client is going to have to understand how the counterparty reference rates relate and trade relative to the uh, member country leader reference rate. And that's something that has not been developed yet, and that's something we'll be seeing over the next uh, after the next year. So let's just talk about intercompany agreements then for a minute. What's going to happen with intercompany agreements? What should M&Es be thinking about right now in terms of their intercompany agreements? In terms of intercompany agreements, there's been a, a firm deadline put into place by the New York Federal Reserve Bank where January 1st, 2021, M&Es and just generally all, all agreements are going to have to be denominated in a, in a different reference rate. The uh, ARC has come out a uh, transition plan guidance, if you will, away from LIBOR to a new reference rate, specifically SOFR. So they've, they've come out with a guidance template that um, is on the Federal Reserve site, but Cross-Border and our team have put in a more succinct way to apply for transfer pricing. The first thing that you're looking for when you're transitioning away for an intercompany agreement is a trigger event. And this trigger event is uh, summarized by the ARC as an event uh, which necessitates the need for a change from uh, that reference rate. So such uh, ARC-sanctioned events include a benchmark discontinuous event. An example of this would be the International Exchange, which publishes LIBOR, stops calculating that LIBOR reference rate to a determination by an agent or contracted lenders that new or amended loans are incorporating a new benchmark reference interest rate to replace LIBOR. Another example would be a material increase in basis risk 
caused by the underlying assets of a securitization having converted to an alternate rate, although this is mostly applied to derivatives, which may not be as applicable for transfer pricing. Finally, the effective date of an applicable federal or state law or applicable federal or state regulation prohibits the use of the reference rate. And that's that January 1st, 2021 deadline that I've referred to before. So if you have an intercompany agreement with a loan that's going to affect today, but the term of the loan is going to exceed 2021, what kinds of changes would you want to make to that intercompany agreement? Or what would you want to make sure that intercompany agreement, what kind of language, say, would you want to make sure it included? So that's a really good question because we do have clients with exactly this fact pattern. And um, currently we have, uh, for example, a client that has uh, uses Ionia, which is also similar to LIBOR, which is a panel determined by a panel of banks. And they have a five-year loan, which is extending out to 2024. And um, during that period of time, we know Eonia is going to be discontinued and ESTER, which is the European Union's central bank market reference rate, is going to be implemented. And so what I would do and what we would recommend for that client is within their existing language in the existing agreement to add a clause or a paragraph that states that should there be a transition away from Eonia or, um, you know, or a transition to a new benchmark reference rate, that the current agreement will take that into a place, take that into account, and we can actually um, adopt and amend their agreement should that happen over the course of that loan agreement. The positive aspect of that is that the client will not have to enter into a new agreement. They can actually amend their existing agreement. And there's a lot of positives for that um, on that on that point for the counterparties to the loan because the counterparty to the loan essentially would not have to reassess its creditworthiness at the time when Esther was implemented. Um, if they entered this language in the agreement today that the agreement will adapt to changes in the reference rate, then they could essentially uh, legally amend the agreement and not have to reevaluate the creditworthiness of the borrower. That's great. And also from a transfer pricing perspective, you don't have to start from scratch with new benchmarks and new comparisons, and you can kind of just continue on. Exactly. So, okay, so we have a question now for Fiona again. Fiona, the transition period sounds challenging. For example, you mentioned that risk-free rates are currency specific. What if you're working with a jurisdiction where an alternative rate in a specific currency is not available? The alternative rate in a specific currency may not be available in early stages of the transition away from LIBOR. Be sure to include fallback provisions in intercompany contracts. For example, it might say that you would say will agree on a new replacement index when new risk-free rates become available. And finally, introducing Miss Lucy Liu. So um, it depends on the availability of the data uh, in different third-party databases. So for example, um, if you have sufficient data um, you know, related to the new reference rate, and you can actually use those third-party comparable um, loan agreement to benchmark your um, intercompany loan. And if you, know, you don't have sufficient data in the third-party database, so you can if you can find the formula or the rationale behind 
you know, how to convert the LIBOR to the new reference rate so that you can know what's a credit spread you need to um, you need to update it, then you can actually convert the LIBOR to whatever the data point that is available to you to that new reference rate and just convert that to the new reference rate. And actually to speak to that, and this is an issue that needs to be, be addressed by um, the Federal Reserve Bank of New York, there still is no conclusive transition. Guidelines. Uh, yeah, mm -hmm. transition guidelines uh, away uh, from LIBOR in terms of like the credit spread and how you would convert from LIBOR to SOFR in a way that would be considered arm's length by you know the relevant tax authorities. And there would have to be guidelines then for every new benchmark, right? Individual specific guidelines. So Yeah, I think that the tax authorities are looking to the Federal Reserve Banks to take the first step in this regard. And I think the tax authority is likely to move first also our Australia uh, tax authority and the Canadian Revenue Authority because they've already moved to those uh, reference rates that are based on the market. Um, the IRS currently has not issued any, any policy directive or any announcement about uh, the fact that the applicable federal rate, which is the uh, safe harbor rate for the IRS, um, they haven't issued anything that states that that rate's going to be recalibrated in any way based on SOFR. So um, I do think that the tax authorities are going to try to uh, encourage taxpayers to uh, move toward the new reference rates along with the central banks. But I don't think that I haven't seen any guidelines yet, but I do expect them to come in the next year before the transition. MEs are facing you know, new contract changes, possibly um, changes to documentation, changes to their narratives. Could the transition away from LIBOR throw off arm's length comparabilities? I can think of a technical like challenges for the MNEs because they are going to change the uh, loan agreement based on LIBOR to other benchmark rates. So it means that they will adjust the margin they add on the base, um, like base interest rate, and then they need to understand the uh, like average uh, credit spread difference between the old base benchmark rate like LIBOR and the new like benchmark rates like SOFR. And also um, like in the previously when we used LIBOR as a benchmark rate, we used maybe three months or six months. Okay. However, now we only have the overnight rate of the SOFR. So this mean, which means that the MAEs, they might need to calculate the average rate of SOFR themselves. So that might be a challenge for them. Do you expect with those adjustments, arm's length will stay, arm's length comparability will stay intact. Yes, I think the challenge is going to be, um, as, I, as we mentioned earlier about the amendments and the agreements during the transition, that the essentially the cost um, of the credit, the credit worthiness and the credit spread that's inuring um, on the loan because of the credit worthiness of the borrower, that that's conserved and that stays the same while the spread on the new uh, reference benchmark rate may change, but the overall cost of the loan won't change. And that will be the challenge to transfer pricing advisors and to their clients to ensure that the cash flow related to the interest you know, expense that's coming back or being paid is essentially unchanged, but the, but the actual way of measuring that is going to change because of the reference benchmark rate will be SOFR or SONIA and those are risk-free rates, so normally they're lower than LIBOR, so it's expected the credit spread will be different. 
on top of those reference rates other than they were on LIBOR. A global pandemic, a grim economic forecast, feeling the squeeze, an R&D tax credit can help lower your burn. If you qualify, the IRS and some state governments will give you a tax credit equal to 10% of your company's spend on development activities. You can even take the credit against payroll taxes if you're in the red. All you have to do is claim it. So what's stopping you? If an expensive application process is turning you off, sorry, now you really have no excuse. Cross-Border Solutions AI-driven R&D tax credit software eliminates the need for pricey consultants and allows you to apply for R&D credits all over the world for one low fee. After all, why should you have to spend your whole R&D tax credit on getting your R&D tax credit? It's your money. Keep more of it with Cross Border Solutions, the global leader in AI-driven tax solutions. Request a demo today. Visit xbs.ai/rd. That's xbs.ai/rd. So, in an intercompany loan, given the transition away from LIBOR, of course. Um, who now bears more risk? Is it the lender or the borrower during this transition? So I actually think that both uh, parties are going to bear risk. Um, I do think that it's the responsibility of the lender uh, to ensure that the agreement is updated um, with the appropriate transition language just as a lender in the in the open market between third parties would have to make that adjustment. However, on the side of the, the, the borrower, the tax authority and the borrower jurisdiction will surely expect that the agreement is updated and that the cost of the loan doesn't change and that the benchmarks reflect that irrespective of whether they're stated in LIBOR or whether they're restated in the new uh, reference benchmark rate of the borrower. So intercompany financing, even without a change in LIBOR, is under so much scrutiny now by so many different tax authorities. I mean, everybody says the first thing we look at is um, intercompany financing. So what do you expect from the tax authorities during this transition? Are you expecting more scrutiny? Are you expecting, you know, maybe some rules to be waived in light of, of everything? Are you expecting them to be looking more at your transactions or more at your contracts or like like what are you expecting to see? I think for tax authority, for sure, they're going to monitor the policy, your intercompany um, agreement or compar comparable loan policy more closely. They may coordinate with other regulatory authority in the same country so that they can help the taxpayer to um, get through those transition periods smoothly and probably they're going to publish new rules related to the new reference rate and try to help the taxpayer to reevaluate the tax liability and help them to make sure they're not double taxed and they are having the tax savings they should have during the transition period. So it's just interesting because in transfer pricing over the past few years, right, we've seen countries come in unilaterally with their own regulations, they're doing their own thing. Now we're dealing with the digital economy and countries are stepping up with their own digital taxes. And now we have the end of LIBOR and countries are handling those individually as well. So it makes life, I mean, you tell me, what, how does it make life for transfer pricing executives? Yeah, I think generally uh, it's going to make things a little more complicated at the outset only because the new 
reference race based on the market. Um, there's no track record of how they interact with each other, what the spreads are between them, how the markets are operating among the different reference rates yet. Uh, I think as that works itself out over the next few years, but it probably will take years, uh, I do think this, the community will evolve to a more global one like we have with a global uh, LIBOR setting process. But initially, uh, it's likely to be somewhat disjointed as each country likely will bring in their reference rate at a similar time period. But how those, how those reference rates interact with each other will be unknown. And I think that's something that will evolve, as I mentioned. I do think there will be a relationship between the prior LIBOR rate and that new reference rate okay. that might be well established. And I think that's a good place to start. start. Sure. I mean, even to speak to that, I, I mean, I think that that might partly be why um, the, any U.S. Uh, tax authority, whether it be the IRS or, I mean, no, not necessarily a tax authority, but the Federal Reserve has yet to come out with a uh, distinct way to transition from LIBOR in terms of that replacement credit spread. At this point, there's just not that much history with SOFR, so mm -hmm. it's tough to make a definitive judgment on how you want M&Es that come into loan agreements to transition when you know, you're just not sure how it might fluctuate. So. Yeah, that's actually a really good point, because um, on the U.S. side, that is very true. And I think the U.S. is leaving it more up to the private sector, providing general guidance on transition and what that spread might look like between um, U.S. LIBOR and SOFR. But we have seen that in Europe, actually, um, the European Union and the European Central Bank have come out with a, um, a recommended spread between uh, Ionia and Esther. Um, and so whether that sticks for the long term um, is unknown currently, but it is a spread that they're recommending. So it does provide a little bit of certainty to the extent that companies are making transitions in their loan agreements. And what about the narrative for a multinational company? How will the transition away from LIBOR affect the company's story? So the ARC, who the, you know, the committee that's uh, tasked with uh, providing guidance for that transition away from LIBOR has actually come out with different approaches for that transition away. The main approach that is most relevant for transfer pricing, actually that's a one point that I should say, the guidance that they've come out with, it isn't specific to transfer pricing, it's for a third-party loan agreements. Sure. But, you know, it applies. yeah, it applies because inherently if it's for third-party loan agreements, then Absolutely. it's going to be approved by yeah, the regulatory uh, parties. But the main approach that they've come out with is called this uh, waterfall approach. And the waterfall approach essentially is if the first level of that waterfall is if you can't do that as a M&E, then you move on to the next step. And if you can't do that, then you move on to the next step. So the first uh, approach they advise for is to try and use a term SOFR rate, but if this isn't available for the appropriate tenor, you would try to use the interpolated SOFR. And if this isn't available, then you would try to use the compounded SOFR. And if this isn't available, you would try to use the overnight SOFR. And finally, if that's not available, then the um, parties to that loan would come together to establish a um, uh, 
different uh, reference rate based on previous market convention or recommendation by relevant government bodies. And this is actually important because the Federal Reserve and the regulatory authorities um, at the central bank level are making these recommendations about how these agreements should be and recommending transition steps away from LIBOR to the new market reference rates. So to the extent that they're already making these recommendations and they're very public, they're available to commercial loan holders. And for that reason, within the transfer pricing sphere, the related parties in their intercompany loans have the ability to reach for that same language because it is being recommended at arm's length for third parties. And to that extent, I believe it's in the company's interest to be proactive. And um, and our M&Es should be proactive in their agreements and in their transfer pricing documentation. So if the transition is occurring next year, there may be some benefit, I think a, a large benefit to a company to discuss the fact that you know, their agreement has um, an availability to transition to a new uh, market-based reference rate. They maybe not don't have to specifically mention Esther um, in particular to Europe, but they could mention that there is a provision in their language that allows for that transition. And mentioning that narrative, I think, helps reduce red flags um, at both sides, at the tax authorities, whether they're at the lender side or the borrower side, because those tax authorities realize that that client and that MNE is aligned in their transfer pricing policy directive with what's happening in the world from a regulatory perspective um, along the lines of the central banks. So I think by mentioning that, you're actually reducing your risk. I think by ignoring it, you may actually be raising red flags to the extent you ignore it year after year after year um, once you know the transfer the transition has happened to the market-free reference rates. So in that extent, I do believe that it's in the clients and in our clients' interests and the M&E's interests to actually be more proactive and be transparent about what they're doing. So the end of LIBOR becomes part of your story. Exactly. If you're having financial transactions. Exactly. Um, company, that's great. So what are the immediate challenges that you see for transfer pricing executives? And we can talk about them now, you know, even before the end, of, like before LIBOR changes. If you're working inside a company, if you're working for a company doing their transfer pricing, like one of the things that I was thinking is like companies may know they're going to be affected by the end of LIBOR. Do they know exactly where they're going to be affected by the end of LIBOR? And is that something they should be looking at and getting that together so they know where they're vulnerable? Yeah, and I think on that note, the one of the proactive actions that I would take as a transfer pricing executive is to to coordinate and compile all of the information and related to intercompany loans, uh, cash pooling or guarantee fees together, whether that's in a spreadsheet or whatever format, and really identify what the principal loan amounts are that are, are outstanding, um, you know, the interest rates, what the base rates are, the counterparty countries, so you know who the lenders are and who the borrowers are. And then from that starting point, at least you know your current state, then you can try and look to assess what the best transition plan would be for each of those transactions um, related to you know who the borrower is and who the lender is. I think that's a great place to start. And so this kind of leads us to my next question, which is, in terms of multinational companies, do you think the transition away from LIBOR forces a bridge between the tax slash transfer pricing department and the finance department inside a company? I mean, it seems like 
at this point anyway, there would be lots of questions for both sides. I do think that it's a great opportunity for the tax and the treasury departments and large multinationals to coordinate and to talk to each other and to learn from each other. Um, that said, because the treasury departments are the ones coordinating the third party loans for the company. And so they're working with banks around the world um, and they're the ones you know, negotiating the rates for the company around the world with those uh, foreign banks. And whatever those rates and those loans are based on in terms of the reference rate that's, you know, that's, that's utilized, that information is very helpful for the tax department to know about. That could act as an internal cup, whether that's used in the transfer pricing documentation or for an audit, um, you know, that's something to be decided. But at least being aware that that's important information, I think that's a, a really op a great opportunity for the tax and treasury departments to discuss and that for the treasury to understand how their data is utilized for our purposes mm -hmm. um, and how that actually impacts the bottom line of the company as well. Yeah, when we talk to a lot of transfer pricing experts here and talking to clients, certainly, I know one concern is getting transfer pricing or the transfer pricing perspective into the forefront of new business. And it seems like this is a perfect place to be proactive. So, Liga, you and your team have done more research on how the end of LIBOR stands to affect transfer pricing than anyone else, and I know because I've been searching for lots of information out there. So, given that you're the experts, what advice do you have today for transfer pricing professionals across the board? I would say uh, be proactive with it. Don't wait for that January 1st, 2021 deadline because um, at that point, you're going to be scrambling away and potentially you could be um, hurt by other parties that might be more knowledgeable um, about this transition and will um, take advantage of you and your lack of knowledge at that point. To take the steps now when you have a chance to... To strategize, yeah, right? Yeah, to strategize, exactly. Yeah, I agree uh, with Charlie, and I, I also think that it's important that all of the uh, multinationals relook at their agreements, their intercompany loan, cash pooling, and guarantee agreements, and as I mentioned um, about their lenders and borrowers currently, and to the extent that they're able to, I highly recommend that they add some sort of uh, legal language that allows for transition away from a LIBOR-based rate within their existing agreement to a new reference rate that's market-based. Keep that keep that language kind of broad right now? I agree, yeah. Keep it as broad as possible. Don't box, your, box yourself in. But I do think having that language is extremely important um, because it allows the the lender to actually amend the agreement rather than entering into a new agreement. If that language is not present in the uh, loan agreement, the tax authority could come in and say, well, you've entered into a new agreement now based on Esther or Sofer or Sonia. So I think if you have the ability to amend the current agreement because the language in the agreement allows the transition to a new market-based rate, then I think you're you're safer in, in able to um, assess the cost of the borrowing in the exact same way you did in the past and just use a different reference rate mm -hmm. rather than reassess the cost of the borrower three or four years later, which may be very different. Right. So your goals for now are to know where you're vulnerable and to keep your intercompany agreements 
on the amended side, not on the new agreement side. Correct. Just to keep your loans in the same place. And this just about wrapped up our original interview, though you'll hear Liga take part in our what we want to know rapid fire question round in a moment. But with new updated regulations from the IRS for companies and during the LIBOR transition, we got Liga back on the phone a week or so after our original interview to answer a few questions. So, Liga, the IRS recently proposed regulations for taxpayers regarding the transition from LIBOR. Perfect timing for your research, by the way. Can you give us an overview of those regulations? Sure, yeah. Um, It was interesting because the regulations came out during the course of our research, so our research was quite spot on. Uh, And what the Treasury is trying to do here is encourage uh, commercial participants in various loan and derivative transactions in the market to move proactively away from LIBOR and toward the market-based reference rates that we've uh, we've earlier talked about. And um, in in relation to that, um, they're actually uh, providing guidance so that market participants, and this directly bears on transfer pricing, um, that market participants at arm's length uh, understand that they with certainty can um, they can modify the existing interest rates away from LIBOR to certain market-based interest rates and that transition will not be considered a taxable event. Uh, so they will not be uh, subject to um, any sort of tax or uh, exchange of a debt instrument uh, should they follow the Treasury's proposed transaction uh, requirements. Right. right. And on that note, Yeah, no, that sounds great. It seems like uh, they're really kind of empathetic to the position that companies around the world are going to be put in. Um, I know they have a few proposals, one of which is about the alternative benchmark rates. Can you give us a little guidance there? Sure, yeah. I think the Treasury has been Actually, in the new proposed regulations, the Treasury is um, defining the qualified rates, which they're terming qualified rates in terms of the rates that the LIBOR rates need to transition to. And those qualified rates defined in the new regulation um, are quite broad. Um, They include eight listed reference rates Mm -hmm. that have been proposed by central banks, including the U.S.'s SOFR, UK, Sonia, um, and various um, other indices, average indices from Japan, Australia, the European Union, Hong Kong, and Canada. Uh, In in addition, they also allow for alternative um, LIBOR replacement rates that may be selected by central banks in the future in addition to those eight. And they've also allowed for the rates that are published in the Internal Revenue Bulletin, which Mm -hmm. does include the applicable federal rates. So they've defined them quite broadly. Okay. And I'm sure they define them broadly on purpose. Yes, exactly. I think that they really do want to encourage um, existing commercial loan holders and derivative instrument holders to transition away from LIBOR to these new reference rates uh, sooner than the end of 2021. Right. And I think for that reason, they're encouraging this modification so there's no taxable event. They're giving them almost a safe harbor in transitioning yeah. earlier. Yeah, so the subtext there is don't put this off, get going. <laughs> exactly. Don't put this off, get going. And I think there's a couple other tests that yeah. they've added. So in addition to the reference rates, they've added a couple of other uh, conditions that need to be satisfied. I know one of which was a currency test. Can you explain a little bit about that? Sure. 
So uh, the currency test essentially currently loans and cash pooling arrangements in the transfer pricing world um, are, and, and also probably at third, at third parties, between third parties are set up um, using various uh, currencies. They can use the British pound or the US dollar or the Hong Kong dollar. And the only requirement is, is that um, prior to, you know, when you're using the LIBOR rates and after the transition, that the transactions are essentially conducted in the same currency. So if you do have a loan that's extended to Canada um, in Canadian dollars and, you know, essentially they want you to continue using the Canadian dollar as your currency when you transition to the CORA rates, which are what the Canadian Central Bank is proposing. Okay, that makes a lot of sense. So given the new guidance, um, what is your advice to clients now? Well, I think in the transfer pricing world, these proposed regulations do provide quite a bit of guidance from a tax perspective and also assist on transfer pricing because they're providing guidance to parties operating at arm's length. And since Mm -hmm. the arm's length standard is our quintessential transfer pricing standard around the world, that we can actually uh, draw on these requirements and these conditions um, that Treasury has put forward to support our own plans for our clients to transition from LIBOR to market-based reference rates. So in my uh, in my opinion, if we follow similar approaches to what's been uh, proposed for commercial participants at arm's length, we should be in quite good shape in transitioning our clients for transfer pricing. You know, the the IRS seems to be trying to make this as seamless as possible. I mean, I don't know if seamless is going to be possible, but um, it seems like they're giving a lot of leeway here to to help everybody avoid additional taxation from the transition. Yeah, I think they are, and um, I think uh, they do. Uh, they do want to allow for some leniency, so this is not going to be right. a rushed event at right. the end of 2021. Uh, I do think there's also another test, um, which is the fair market value test, and that is an interesting test that they have in the regs um, that uses a, a historic average of LIBOR reference rates against the new reference rates that they have to be within 25 basis points of right. each other. And that's a new test also, along with the currency test. Um, but what's interesting about the 25 basis points is that's actually what we found in our research when we did our calculations of the um, three-month SOFA rate against the U.S. LIBOR rate, both um, the replacement rates and the forward-looking rates. Um, both of those differences were around 25 basis points. And I'm thinking that, you know, that's that's a similar rate that they've come up with in terms of a difference between uh, LIBOR and uh, U.S.-based SOFR. That's amazing. That Given the new regulations, are you advising clients to get going on this right away? Yes, definitely. I think this is very important given that Treasury has come out with these um, mm-hmm. regulations and these proposed regulations in early October that we're facing 2020. Right. Um, 2020 is going to be the year that I think there's going to be quite a bit of transition um, between in the commercial markets and as well um, Similarly, I think that clients should be looking at making these changes as soon as possible. And it allows additional time to consider alternative potential reference rates when you do allow yourself that time for transition. Sure. 
Hi, I'm Matthew DeMello, and you may know me as the host of the Fiona Show Cross-Border Solutions Weekly Transfer Pricing Podcast. And while I love to discuss transfer pricing, this podcast isn't the only place you can hear me doing it. Cross-Border Solutions recently relaunched Transfer Pricing University, a live webinar series where you can learn about modern-day transfer pricing, everything from methodologies to comparables to preparing documentation to meet country-specific regulations. Good stuff, I know. Chief Economist Mimi Song leads the sessions. I just ask the occasional obvious question. Since our program is NASBA certified, you can earn one CPE credit for joining each session. Pretty sweet. So what are you waiting for? Join us for Transfer Pricing University every Tuesday and Thursday at 11 a.m. Eastern. Classes are free, so now you really have no reason to miss it. Sign up at xbs.ai slash tpu. And now we return with the final segment of our original interview. Great discussion, Liga, and congratulations to you and your team on your groundbreaking research. I know you will keep us and our Fiona Show listeners up to date as more questions surrounding the end of LIBOR are answered. But for now, it's time for my favorite part of the show, what we want to know. We put a transfer pricing expert. This time it's senior economist Liga Hoy in the hot seat and fire a rapid round of thought-provoking questions her way. Are you ready, Liga? Yes, I am. (laughs) Here we go. Over the years, you've worked with many loyal clients. What's your advice on building relationships for the long term? I think my best advice in building relationships with clients in the long term is is earning their trust. And to do that is keeping your word to your deadlines, to your level of quality, and to the integrity of your team and what they can deliver. I think that, in the end, is what builds, um, builds the strongest relationship. In addition to that, I think going over and above for your clients um, builds a lot of trust, an additional trust when um, in the long term. What is your biggest everyday challenge? Manage us. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I have this team here. <laughs> is that your biggest everyday challenge? Is that your, fi- is that your final answer? <laughs> it's a 20-year-old joke. Uh, Would you like to phone a friend? Uh, I think my biggest everyday challenge is uh, is just ensuring that our our clients are as as happy and pleased with our work at the beginning of the day at the end of the day as they were at the beginning of the day that's for sure and what moment has changed the way you think so I think well what changed the way I think is um, I think it matters a lot to be ready and do a lot of research and know your stuff. I also think it really matters that you have good, strong relationships, whether it's with your clients, your team, your family, your friends, um, and people that you don't know. I think um, I think that's really important because you never know when the next opportunity is going to be ahead of you, and you don't know who's going to tap on your shoulder, and you don't know where they're going to come from. Fill in the blank. If I weren't a senior economist, I'd be a... What would I be? I you tell me. You tell <laughs> me. <laughs> Uh, it's what a, a sailboat captain, yeah? <laughs> I'd actually like to work for a Ministry of Finance. Oh, okay. But would you, you would you be doing anything different as a senior economist? 
I'd like to work on transfer pricing policy for um, so, a main treasury or finance ministry on more on the policy level. That would be, and I've done that, but I think that that's, uh, that's a very interesting area to explore. And that's the Fiona Show this week. Everyone want to hear more? Of course you do. Subscribe to our podcast on iTunes or Spotify, and we'll keep you in the know about transfer pricing every week. And since you're right there, don't forget to subscribe to the Fiona Show, Hot Off the Press, where we deliver the transfer pricing news, changes in regulations, updates from the OECD, you name it every week. This podcast was hosted, edited, and engineered by yours truly. Executive producer Marilyn Mitchum Strom writes our scripts. We'll catch you next week, everyone.